Welcome back, QAV Club members. This is QAV 19, part two of the interview that we recorded recently with American private investor Austin Lieberman. Hopefully you've already heard part one, so I don't need to introduce him. If you haven't, I recommend you go and listen to that one before you listen to this one. So on this week's episode, we'll uh, finish up that conversation that Tony and I had with him, and then uh, Tony and I'll have a little bit of our usual post-game chat uh, to to see uh, whether or not Austin convinced Tony uh, about his methodology for valuing growth stocks. And then for our stock analysis this week, I'm going to play a recording that Tony and I again made when I was in Sydney a month or so ago, where we looked at Coles. And we also did another one where we looked at Woolworths, and I might put that one out next week and compare the two, some interesting differences between the two, and see how well-established brands like that stack up to the checklist. Okay, let's get into part two of the interview with Austin. One of the top fund managers I follow here in Australia once said the best way to judge the quality of the management is to take the five year, the last five years of of reports and see if they said what they were going to do. So you know, look at look at the uh, look at the management guidance to, and then check to see if they actually made those numbers. And that's probably the best way to to objectively judge management because, as you say, they can they can be salesmen and saleswomen, and you've got to be careful of that. Yeah, but but look, the reason why I asked you whether you invested in the and sorry U.S. equities exclusively is that. Uh, we're, we're based in Australia and, and sometimes it can seem like it's a, a bit of a black box, the US market. I, I just wanted to know a bit more about it. So there are a number of exchanges in the US. Do you confine yourself to one particular exchange? And as a follow-up question, what kind of, how do you gather your information? What kind of data services or analytical services and tools do you use? Yeah, great, great question. Um, no, I do not stick to just one one exchange. I own 10 companies, four that are in the NYSE and six that are on the NASDAQ. So generally, it, it, they do fall into those two exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as where I find information. So again, the, you know, the number one resource I've used and I, and I'm, so I'm by no means, I don't consider myself an expert. I, I, so I'm happy to admit that I follow uh, stock recommendation services because there's, it, again, it's more, there's more to it than just finding the right companies. You, you also have to uh, be able to hold them and, and, and have the right kind of management philosophy. Um, so I follow the Motley Fool Stock Advisor and Rule Breaker. Those are, those are two services that you can pay for. And I think for both of those, you can, you can get them for like under 200 bucks um, a year us. So and that can be expensive for some people, and I realize that. But then when you think if you just find one stock that doubles or triples mm-hmm. or goes up 10 times in value, that pays for that for 50 mm-hmm. years. Um, I also subscribe to, and this is pretty new, but Ycharts, um, which is basically you can run screens with it, which I don't really use that much. You can um, You can have an overview of your portfolio. You can look at – it's really easy to pull data. So uh, – I can look at all of my companies. I can see the uh, quarterly year-over-year revenue growth, the, those those metrics that I talked about, the total expenses, quarterly year-over-year gross prof- profit margin, sales and marketing, um, price of sales, total revenue, market. You can look at all kinds of stuff. It does graphs and all that. I don't use it for any of the, the technicals, but I, I like to be able to look at different things on there. Um, and then I just try to read, read widely. So I, I try to... You know, my portfolio is a lot of like tech oriented companies. And so I try to read different magazines and articles and listen to podcasts that that talk about what's happening in business and enterprise business and tech to just have a little bit of an understanding of it. So, yeah. Yeah, Okay. so would you use those tools to source a new investment or where where do you find uh, uh, what what, what do you scan to find uh, a new investment to invest in? Yeah, so it's. You know, I might see a company get recommended by one of the stock advisor services, and I'll they provide a lot of data in there, so I'll I'll look at that, and that matters a lot to me because I I trust them. Um, but then I'll kind of do my own. I'll that's 
if that's where I hear about a company, that's where it'll it'll start. And then I'll go to the first thing I'll do is I'll go to the company's investor relations page, look at their last year at least of quarterly reports, see if they've like you like you talked about, are they doing the things they say they're gonna do? I like to actually listen to earnings calls as well as read the transcripts because I think there's a lot that can be gathered from hearing the the tone of management's voice and how they interact with analysts and answer questions. Um, and then uh, I, I will go to Y charts and look at, and I really don't pay too much attention to price to sales ratio, which is, is um, basically a ratio of the stock price compared to the revenue of a company. And with Y charts, and the good thing about some of these charting tools is you can see what has that looked like over time. And I, I don't look for a specific price to sales ratio number and have that as my cap. But what I do look at is, okay, is this company, you know, far above what the average price to sales ratio of the last few years have been? And if it is, then I start to think, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's way, way, way overvalued. I actually like to look for companies that are considered overvalued, but I don't, I don't like to own companies that are potentially in bubble territory or at an extreme overvalued. I think a, people thinking something is overvalued can actually be a really good thing, especially with tech companies and, and innovative companies. Because what we've seen, if you look at Netflix and Google and Amazon, those companies back before they were the companies they are today, we didn't know what products they were going to have. We didn't know what markets they were going to grow into. So nobody on earth could have possibly forecasted what the revenue was going to look like when Amazon was a bookstore and now they have Amazon web services, which is, which is a, a cloud platform. That's why I actually like to look for companies that are considered a little bit overvalued. If I think they're innovative and they're, they're leading in the industries that they're in, because generally they, the leaders keep on, uh, keep on winning. And the reason for that is as a company starts to outperform and, and starts to do well, it becomes a place that people want to work. So they start to attract the best talent. They start to get a bigger lead in market share in the markets that they're in. So it's easier to go and acquire customers because if somebody in, in, in IT at a company wants to bring on this new software, it's a lot easier to bring it on if there's a lot of people out there using it and it's a leader in the category. And, and so that's, that's why I think companies that, that our leaders continue to be leaders. And again, that's, it's kind of a David Gardner thing um, from the Motley Fool. And, and I, I agree with that as well. So do you have some kind of uh, checklist that you'd use to evaluate a new company? I really don't have a, a line by line checklist that I, I give a company a score or anything like that. I, again, I have the, the categories that I look for. It's, it's founder led. If a company is not founder led, I really won't even consider owning it. Um, I, I look for market cap, revenue growth, it, all those things. And if it falls into the rough kind of percentages that I'm looking for, then then I think it's an investment-worthy company. And, and then it comes down to learning about the market that they're in. Is it possible for that company to be 10 times the size that it is today? And, it, and that's kind of the, the vision that I have to be able to have about a company if it's going to be one of the 10 companies that I'm invested in. That certainly won't always come true. I'll be wrong about a lot of them, but if, if I can't even imagine it being 10 times bigger, and that, that's kind of why I look for companies that are like sub $20 billion market caps, it's a lot easier for them to go to $200 billion market cap than it is for a $200 billion market cap company to go to $2 trillion. Um, yeah, then, then, yeah, so it's not a great answer, but no, I, I don't. I don't have a uh, a specific checklist. So that seems to be the secret sauce. I mean, both with our discussion with uh, Matt Joss and, and yourself is is how do you get a feel for this? What companies are going to have exponential growth? Can you, maybe can you talk us through an example that uh, has has worked for you, where you've said, okay, I can see the the runway for this company. How, how did you see that runway? Yeah, um, Twilio is up one hundred and eight percent for me. And that number is a little off too, because that's my, my total purchases. And like I said, I buy generally more over time. So my initial purchase of Twilio was 
probably it's probably up a lot more than 100%. The reason I bought Twilio is because for those of you who don't follow the US market or tech stocks, I just wanted to point out that Twilio is a cloud communications platform based in San Francisco. According to Wikipedia, Twilio allows software developers to programmatically make and receive phone calls, send and receive text messages, and perform other communication functions using its web service APIs, currently trading at about $145 US. And that's up from $25 US around about the beginning of 2018. So pretty good 18 months. They were talking about the uh, a new platform that they were that they were coming out with that was a um, programmable uh, contact center a programmable contact center. What a contact center is is that's uh, generally they have all been what's called on premise, and and on premise means it has to be located at the the organization that's using it. Um, and that's people do customer service for different companies. Twilio uh, created what they claim is is the really the world's first cloud, uh, fully programmable contact center. And I read about that. I learned about it. I, I looked at their earnings calls. Um, and I, And one of the things they talk about is that they think they have the contact center market like something like two back back then it was like two percent uh they've got like two percent of that market or or basically like 98 percent of it was still in on-premise contact centers and now i think it's somewhere like 10 percent are are uh are basically cloud contact centers versus on-premise contact centers um so when they started talking about this i and looking at the the product that they were talking about, they had it. They did a release for it. it. It just to me, I I saw that as the way of the future. And the important thing, though, is that their earnings numbers and sixty percent and seventy percent revenue growth is what proved that their their strategy is working. Um, and so, if you look at, they did an investor day and they talk about. Um, basically being the the market leader in communications and so what the future could look like for twilio is not just cloud contact centers but it could be vr communication which is virtual reality communication with customers they talk about uh things from audio they were talking about email which they just acquired a company called sengrid which does email and so what they're doing is they're I believe they're creating the best platform in the world for companies to be able to do customer service uh, with customers and to to run all of their basically their communications and their contact through. Um, and so that's a that's why it's my second largest position. Um, and I and uh, Jeff Lawson is their founder and CEO. He's extremely innovative. He used to work at. Um, AWS, so he has experience, which is Amazon Web Services, so he's got experience there. They have gone through the phase, and they're still going through the phase where they're competing with Amazon and AWS. They've got a competing contact center product. They've weathered that, and and all of those things are are reasons that people say not to invest in Twilio. And I think over time, Twilio is going to start to just or continue to prove prove those things wrong. And and as that happens, um, I believe the company will continue to grow. And I think it's the market cap of Twilio, it's a $17 billion market cap company. So would you sell it when it gets to 20? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I don't want to sell Twilio until it's a $200 billion market cap <laughs> company. But like I said, I will continue to watch their earnings. And if, if it's clear that, hey, this, this programmable contact center is not working, their revenue drops, their net retention rate goes down, their gross margin goes down, they're having to spend more in sales and marketing to acquire companies, th- that's when I'll, I would certainly sell. You know, and so the other thing is like, again, I've accepted the fact my portfolio is going to drop 30% or 40% or 50%. It's just, it's going to happen. 
but all you only have to own one or two companies that returns a thousand percent or ten thousand percent, and that that literally makes your lifetime. And it, you know, right or wrong, that's that's my mentality now, and and I'll learn some hard lessons along the way, but that's that's my approach. <laughs> No, fair enough. Um, I know that uh, in some of the uh, postings that I, I did during my research for you, you spoke about options and you spoke about those before. You also spoke about IPOs. What What are your thoughts on initial public offerings and, and whether or not you buy into them? Yeah, so, you know, there's data out there, I think, that shows generally investing in IPOs is a bad idea. Um, a year after IPOs is usually they're they're down from their IPO price. I would say generally I don't invest in IPOs, but there are times that I do. And so I bought a company called PagerDuty on its IPO day. I bought Zoom on its IPO day. Um, I did not buy Uber. I did not buy Lyft. Uh, I bought Slack on its IPO day, but then I sold it because I realized I I just got caught up in the excitement. (laughs) So really, again, what it comes down to is how do I feel about the company? And is it a company that I believe could be transformational and, and become much larger in the future? And then two, what is the excitement around it? And so we can talk about Beyond Meat, which is, you know, whatever. The numbers have been ridiculous. If, like me, you don't know who Beyond Meat is, they're a company that is making sort of plant-based meat substitutes. Founded in 2009 by a guy called Ethan Brown. Looks like they floated earlier this year. Share price has gone from... About $70 to $160 since the 5th of May. Kind of uh, insane. I I cannot see in my mind what their competitive advantage is and why somebody can't come in and just do the same thing at a better scale and, and basically Beyond Meat is gone tomorrow or in a year or two. So... In that case, I did not invest in the IPO. In Uber and Lyft, I don't see how those companies are ever going to become profitable because they they don't have any driver loyalty. They don't have any rider loyalty. They're constantly competing each other uh, with each other on price. And so when you're doing that, you, you don't have happy drivers. You don't have happy customers. So it's it's like who's going to win? I I don't know, but I don't see I don't see either business being profitable. Um, PagerDuty and Zoom. Um, I, I saw those as potentially transformational companies um, with products that I think are delivering value and innovation, like innovative capabilities to all kinds of different industries and customers. And so uh, I, I did buy those on the IPO day. Um, I sold Zoom the next Monday, which was a a mistake. And the reason I did that was because of valuation. And it, again, so I, I I said earlier, I don't pay that much attention to valuation, but we're all human. And I was convinced that everybody was far too excited about Zoom and that the, the price was going to come down and that it was just an absolute extreme valuation. But this company is growing revenue at over 100% a year. And they have been for the last three years. I don't know of another company that, that has done that at, at the scale and the, so the, the size of revenue that they have. I don't know of another company that's done that. Um, and... Uh, so I, I bought it originally at like 62, I sold it at 59 and then I just bought it again at 101. Uh, I added on Monday and then I, I added to it again this week at like 85. So now I've got about a 3% position in zoom. Um, and, and I, a lot of people would probably never do that. They would never, they would never buy a company that they had. Uh, owned at 62, sold at 59, you know, your mentality says, no, I'm going to wait for it to go below that number. But I don't know if we're ever going to get a chance to own it again, lower than that. And if we do, um, I, I have not bought what I would consider a full position in zoom. It's, it's a, the small, one of the smallest positions in my portfolio. So if there was a market major market correction and zoom dropped significantly, that would be one of the first companies that I would want to take money out of something else or add, add money to and get it, get it to be a larger position. Hmm. All right. No, it's interesting. I, if I was in your shoes and looking at a company like Zoom, I'd be really testing it against my own 
valuation for it and let that make up my mind when to buy and sell. But you don't do that. So that's that's interesting. It's, it's good to have different viewpoints. One last question, and we ask this of people, is can you nominate some books or even podcasts that have heavily influenced your investing style? Yeah, I, I would say, and everybody should expect this by now, but the most valuable resource, it could be the most valuable resource I've ever found for investing, but definitely the most valuable free resource I've ever found is Rule Breakers Investing Podcast, um, which is by David Gardner. David Gardner is one of the three founders of The Motley Fool. It was established in 1993. I would just listen to every episode he's ever done. He's got to be one of the best investors of our time. Just the way he thinks and how he thinks about things so far beyond just investing is just so impressive to me. David Gardner is such an interesting person. You know, I don't read a lot of investing books because I think I think there's more important things to read about than, than investing and that you can learn from uh, other books outside of investing. So we'll go Capitalism Without Capital is not directly about investing. That's a book by Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake. And it's about basically about the revolution of the software company and about how the revolution of software and how we should maybe think about using different measurements to measure uh, companies and GDP and things like that. Now that are, at least in the US, um, are our GDP and, and our just technology is so different than it was back in the day when when some of these metrics that we measure things by in the economy uh, originally happened or were originally created. So that would be maybe a different book that's kind of about investing, but but kind of not. Um, capitalism without capital. Good. I'll look it up. Over to you, Cam. Do you have any questions at all? No, look, um, fascinating stuff, Austin. Thanks very much for coming on and sharing all of that with us and i hope that you'll come back on let's say a year from now and we can see how things are going yeah do it whether i do whether my portfolio is worth zero or more uh i'm happy to come on and i'll i'll be honest about it so yeah look it, it'll be great to see how your journey progresses so you're what you said you started 2011 and 12 so sort of six or seven years into your journey yeah yeah, definitely. It'd be great to to check in like once a year and see what you've what you've learned, what's changed, if anything, in that period of time, and track your progress. That'd be fabulous. Sure, I'd love to. And thanks thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Before you go, um, just so people can follow you, throw tell them about your Substack address and your Twitter and all that kind of stuff, and they can uh, follow you online. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I, so Twitter, I'm at Austin Leave A U S T I N. L-I-E-B, and then Substack, and it's just kind of an email newsletter I do, and I try to share all of my trades when I do them, and then I share what every week I just share my portfolio, my performance, um, just to try to be as transparent as possible, is uh, austin.substack.com. And then if you are looking to change careers and you want to learn about software engineering, regardless of where, you at, there's, there, where you're at, there's some countries we, we don't operate in, but um, if you're in the U.S., certainly, uh, Check out Lambda School too. It's it's something I'm super passionate about, and um, thankful to thankful to work there. And hopefully you'll uh, come out and visit us in Oz sometime. You've got a friend in Sydney and a friend in Brisbane. If you ever uh, coming out, well, yeah, and you guys are paying for it, so I'll be there. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll get back to you on that. Time. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks, All right. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Good to meet you, Austin. Cheers. You All right. Uh, what did you think of that, TK? Wow. I mean, I, I, he's obviously doing really well, but it's in a bull market and he's buying tech stocks without a valuation methodology or any sort of in, in exit strategy when things go pear-shaped. Yeah. I mean, he does have a checklist of sorts, I think. He's like he's looking for, is it a founder-led company and mm-hmm. what he thinks the growth prospects are and the earnings calls and that kind of stuff. So it's it's kind of a checklist approach, but a very different risk profile to uh, your approach. Yeah, it reminded me more of the VC style where he's looking for the mm-hmm. 10,000% return to pay for all the losses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, I mean, what are your thoughts on that as a strategy? What's the problem with that from your perspective? Well, hey, it's it's working for these guys, both for Matt Joss and for – Austin, and that's, you know, great. And they've had four or five years of phenomenal returns. 
I just I just really worry about what's going to happen to their portfolios when the downturn comes, and it will. Uh, it's happened just happens before. It's happened before, and it will happen again. And if I think Matt Joss probably had more of a, a framework around what he was doing, and therefore would probably get out, if not at the right time, then pretty close to it. I'm not sure if Austin will. Uh, he's you know he. He said he talked about the last quarter of last year where his portfolio went down 30% or more. From memory, I don't know about the US market, but the Australian market went down 10%. So he fluctuated more wildly, and that was just in a 10% correction. So imagine if the US stock market went down 30%, which it's done plenty of times in the past. That hits gross stocks. They really are the tail that wags up and wags down. That will hit gross stocks tremendously more powerfully than it hits the US general market. Uh, and if he he may hold on and, and come out the other side and be happy and all that, uh, it could take a long time though. Uh, just keep thinking back to 2001 when the NASDAQ went from 5,000 to 1,000. That's a, that's a huge, huge drop. But if you'd held on and over the last 18 years since then, you'd be doing okay. What's the NASDAQ at now? I don't follow it really. I can look it up. It's a lot higher than that. Well, higher than a thousand, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> seven nine oh nine is the Nasdaq composite. Right, Nasdaq so it was at five seven six. So it was at five thousand in two in the year two thousand. It's now at just under eight thousand. Hmm. So not much growth in nearly coming up for twenty years. Right. So yeah, and that's so that's my worry. So. Uh, but look, I, I fully acknowledge the US market's different to the Australian market, Cam. I mean, these guys are surrounded by these tech companies that are doing things like making virtual call centres that we just don't get to see here. So well, it's, could, it's more pervasive. Could, there's nothing stopping you investing in on, in NASDAQ stocks, though, right? No, 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 no not that. Oh, well, we should talk about that for our listeners. Um, there isn't, there isn't. I mean, you have extra layers you have to worry about. Sometimes you can invest on a dual-listed company that's listed here and in the US. There's not many of those, but there are some. But if you go native and invest in the US, you've got currency risk to worry about. Mm-hmm. You could you could potentially have double taxation, although there are treaties which get around that. But you get hit with it. And just in the last few years, you get hit with a shitload of paperwork. There's now a, a I think the form's called a WBEN40 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I that's had to fill in that. My, that's been around since my Microsoft days, fifteen years ago. Oh, has it? Okay. Oh, yeah, sorry. I thought it was. I thought it was new. I, I owned Microsoft stock with, back in the day. You know, we got options and converted it, and yeah, we had to fill one of those out from '98. I had to fill one of those out. Okay. Well, sorry. I know that the whole new the whole new regime came in with their what was it called FICA? I think it was called. Right. They started to. It must have been about. I was in Canada, so say in the last five years. America started asking for information about overseas investments so they could tax you worldwide, whereas in the past I think they only taxed on US dollars and it just added great complexities to the amount of paperwork you had to do if you were known to the US system. Right. Um, so that that WBEN40, whatever it was called, was like 40 pages long. Um, it was a huge amount of, of paperwork to gather for them for no net result. I mean... I never had to file a tax return in the US or do anything else with it, but it was just a, another piece of paperwork to fill out. Don't you have people who do that for you? Like- yeah, you could, you could, you could. If you, if I was look, if I was that, uh, if I was that way inclined that I thought uh, I wanted to buy Tulio or Zoom or Lyft or whatever, yeah, I'd stick my neck out and do it. But yeah, I, uh, maybe I just haven't looked at this enough. But I just, I just can't buy into this growth at any cost story. I, mm-hmm. I need to value it. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think that's hold, <laughs> do you think that's holding you back or do you think that in the long run you know safer is better than risk? Well, it's if you <laughs> if you've got your family's fortune on the line, safer is always better than risk. Right. I mean, yeah. in theory though, I guess these guys assume that when the market turns, they will sell relatively quickly and put it in cash and then buy back in later. Yeah, and when you play musical chairs, you'll never think you'll be the person missing out in the chair when everyone runs <laughs> for them. So <laughs> that's a really risky strategy. Right. 
buy, you're basically buying something because you think someone else is going to pay you more for it in the future, which I guess mm-hmm. we all are. Mm-hmm. But you, you're doing it without any. If you're doing it without any sort of valuation guideline, with any out any sort of feel for over what's overpriced and what's not overpriced, and without any sort of feel for what your exit strategy might be, even if it's a blunt instrument like I use, like a, you know, you've got a stock price going down below trend. Yeah, you are you are high flying without a net. Right. Well, uh, fascinating to hear what these guys are doing. Can I just add one more thing? And, yeah. and that is, oh, we've said this before, this feels like 2000 again, when every value manager was having their knuckles wrapped for not performing and every growth manager was, was crowing, especially young ones who hadn't been through a market cycle before. And I remember one of my bosses at Shell when I was working there around that time said, never take financial advice from someone who hasn't been through at least one market cycle. And uh, that's that's... Pretty good advice. And these guys haven't been through more than one market cycle yet. They haven't been through the downturn. It's been a bull market, particularly in growth stocks all the way through. It's going to come to an end at some stage, whether it's this year, next year, or in five years. But it, it, it's like a drug. You can get really hooked on these growth stories, growth stocks. And uh, when one when the crash comes, they all crash. Mm. Well, I think, you know, we, we should have these guys on, um, you know, once a year or something like that, once every couple of years and just... Check in, see how it's going. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't mind talking about these guys. I must admit, I don't, I don't try and debate them because I think we want to hear about what their portfolio is and I don't want to make them defensive. Hmm. But uh, at some stage, if we get them back, maybe it would be good to have a debate about this, whether, whether growth at any cost is the right methodology or whether you need to have some uh, framework around it, at least in terms of value, if not you know, exit positions, all that kind of stuff. Well, like um, Alan Kohler said, maybe you're just an old fuddy-duddy. Yeah, look, and, and look, one of the reasons for talking to these guys is I can, hopefully I can open my eyes to what they're doing and try and do it in a safe way. And certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's good to hear what they're doing. It's, it's amazing the results they're getting. But gee, one part of me says, we're standing on a wall looking backwards <laughs> and the hills, the uphills behind us and it's been great. <laughs> I'm not about to take a step the other way. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's all, all downhill. What I'm always thinking is uh, people in Game of Thrones saying, no one's ever got through the wall. The wall, right. the wall, it stood for a thousand years. But in this case, it's more like five years. No one's yeah. ever got through the wall. Meanwhile, there's a horde of a gajillion zombies coming at them that are going to take down the wall <laughs> in 2.3 seconds with an ice dragon. <laughs> Spoilers if people haven't seen the last season of Game of Thrones. Right, and, and that's exactly uh, right. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to get eaten by zombies. Well, look, here's the, uh, the thing in my mind is, look, I love hearing these guys and hearing about how they do what they do, but... You know, you're my you're my go-to guy. I mean, the reason I wanted to do the show with you is there's a million places you can get financial advice um, out there from, and we're not giving financial advice. Just want to put this out there, but um, we, <laughs> there's a million people I can listen to uh, about financial affairs, and you know, I trust I trust uh, that you are doing what you think is best for your portfolio because. You, you live on it and you've been doing it for decades and I've known you long enough and I know your I know your wife I know your daughter and I trust you yeah well, th- well thank you it's uh, it's it's good to hear and, and look I, I I do want to say I, I don't want to talk behind Austin's back I'm happy to come back and debate with him if he wants to talk about these things in detail but I wanted to give him a chance to put his investment methodology and for our listeners to hear that uh, because there are people out there who listen to this podcast who may decide that growth stocks is the way to go for them. And, and look, if you're, um, if you're starting off with a very small amount, you do get to grow quickly. But just, just, you know, be careful of when it turns against you. And it will come without expectation. It will come without warning. You'll be scratching your head afterwards and say, how did that happen? And then secondly, why didn't I see it? Uh, and, um, yeah, it, that's, it just feels like 1999 again. Everyone's, it's there's a survivor bias going on here, right? It's the people who've started investing four or five years ago. They've ridden the growth wave, and they're saying, you know, this is fantastic. I want to share it, and that's that's great. But they haven't been through the downturn yet. Well, uh, look, I don't think we're talking behind anybody's back. You know, I think these guys are more than happy to acknowledge that they haven't been around the game as long as you have, and we're all learning. You know, 
we're Ooh. we're all learning. You, you've got your approach; they've got their approach, and there's nothing wrong with nothing wrong with no, that. nothing wrong no. with you not agreeing a hundred percent with their approach. It's uh, you know you're entitled to your opinion. Yeah, look, this is what the market is: is people with different opinions getting together and buying and selling stocks. It's it's a it's a voting game, and uh, that's the interesting part about it. And learning about other people's points of view and how they've been successful is interesting as well. Yeah. It is. Everyone listening to this, again, this is not a financial advice, so you, you, we're just providing ideas. But in my head, my thinking is, well, the reason I'm turning to you is because, you know, I've known you a long time. I think you're the real deal. You're not a bullshit artist, at least that I've been able to figure out. You're, you're a good guy. You're a generous guy. And uh, I know your family, they're all good people. So if I have to, if I have to turn to, you know, I did that whole show on the Bullshit Filter recently about heuristics and, you know, who are the sources you turn to that you trust, whether it's for news or, or philosophy. In your case, in, in the case of uh, money, you're my heuristic. My rule of thumb is go to Tony. He, he knows what's going on. So you got to yeah, be, thank you. always be, be careful who you listen to in, in life, I think. Pick your, pick, your, uh, pick your sources of information carefully in this day and age. Yeah, no, you're right. I think you're exactly right. And it's the other, the other quote you just reminded me of is Buffett's who said, you know, someone asked him a little while ago, you know, why do you keep spruiking value investing? And he said, well, I've been teaching it for 30 years and it still hasn't caught on, but it doesn't. It works for me. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And, and I think the reason why it doesn't catch on is because there's always these other spruikers out there spruiking internet stocks or growth stocks or real estate or gold or Bitcoin or whatever, and uh, people get caught up with the bright, shiny thing. You know, it's it's, yeah. and maybe that's what we need to do is say, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna look to someone for financial advice, I mean, first of all, take it from someone who's richer than you. I mean, I remember when we, when we, I was working, you know, running my direct and we, uh, we sold it and we had to wind up, uh, a lot of the positions of people who worked for me because the, the new owners were in New Zealand. Uh, and so we organized, uh, a company to come around and give people financial advice because we were giving them redundancies. And I was concerned if we give some of these, you know, factory workers and call center workers a large sum of money, they'd go out and buy a plasma TV screen and take a whole load of Fiji and it'd all be gone. So um, we hired financial advisors, and after we'd been through all the staff, the financial advisor turned to me and said, well, what about you? When are we going to do yours? And I said, well, I don't really need it, but, you know, why don't we see what you've got to say? I'm always open-minded about this thing. Anyway, so this uh, they sent someone around to my place one night, and the lady turned up in a little yellow Hyundai XL, um, <laughs> which was worth a lot less than the car I was driving at the time, and, uh, you know, came in and, and basically gave me a list of funds where she was getting kickbacks from to invest in. And, <laughs> yeah, to me that just reinforced the whole, yeah, that whole rule of thumb. Don't, as, as again, as Buffett says, Wall Street's the only place where people take a, people who drive to work in Rolls Royces take advice from people who take the subway to work. And you shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, so, well, so yeah, I mean, the heuristic, you're right. The heuristic for taking financial advice is find someone richer and find someone who's been rich for a long time. They've, they've seen the yeah. ups and downs who just haven't arrived yesterday. Um, yeah, they haven't seen enough. Most, yeah. And most people don't know someone like that. Like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming, but I don't know anyone like that except you. Um, so I think it's hard for those of us, particularly, you know, working class, public school kids, to have people like that, that they know, that they trust, that will take the time out to teach them the basic principles. So so um, big props to you for taking time out of your uh, golf to uh, <laughs> teach the rest of us, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> Have I blown enough smoke up your ass in this episode? I hope yeah, so. yeah. I'm, I'm just going to go and take a shower now. <laughs> it's going to last you while you're in Scotland. <laughs> well, that's the end of that part of the show. Now let's get into a little bit of stock analysis, put Tony to work. And as I said, this is one that we recorded early in June when I was at Tony's place in Sydney. We're going to be looking at uh, some of Australia's biggest retailers and see how they hold up to the checklist. So you had this idea about comparing Coles and Woolies. Yeah. This is because you're an old Coles man <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, 
bit of a competitive thing? Not at all, no. Um, although I did work for Stephen Kane, who's now this been brought back as the managing director for Coles or the CEO for Coles. Now, I thought it would be good to compare two large companies that everyone in Australia would know of anyway uh, and just see how different they can they can be on the checklist, even though they're essentially, well, they're essentially mirror images of themselves really, aren't they? Uh, they are. They, the, market, the market's divided up between Coles and Woolworths and then you've got the smaller competitors like Aldi uh, and the independent chains. But... Coles and Woolworths have the majority. They, they're both. Which one here. owns Bunnings? Uh, neither now. So Coles has just recently relisted as a separate company. It was part of West Farmers, and West Farmers owned Bunnings. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, but Coles was spun out last year. Right. Uh, we, I think we only have one set of figures to analyse for them so far, but that's enough. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so essentially they're the same sort of company operating in the same market that you'd think that they would score reasonably similarly. But there's a bit of a disparity in the checklist and it's worth looking at. You're going to get Stephen Kane to come on the show <laughs> and talk to us about it? I could ask him or ask someone from Coles if you like. Oh, get yeah. him. Let's and go to the top through his old mate of yours. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say he was a mate. I worked for him. Oh. Um, oh, I worked for Bill Gates and I tell you, he well, was my you mate. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I didn't have a whole lot to do with Stephen. Um, right. But, yeah, I mean, he was, he was impressive in that he was uh, just hard-driving. Yeah, you know, ruthless and hard driving. So it's probably the kind of person you want running a company like Coles, where if you can save twenty cents a store every day, that make, adds up to a big number over a year. It's, it's that that kind of mentality is often what you find in supermarket retailers. It's a mature market. There's some some room for growth in online and things like that, or acquisitions. But mainly, it's about just being as operationally efficient as you can be. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see how they handle the threats of people like Amazon coming in and trying to pick up relatively big chunks of their business. Yeah, and their business has certainly been under threat more from the low-cost Aldi's of the world. and that sort of thing, yeah. And there's a new German competitor coming in too whose Mm. name escapes me. And you've also got Costco opening stores in Australia. So Mm. that's probably where the big threats are coming Mm. from in the supermarket space. Mm. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into Coles then. I have my worksheet open. You have Stock Doctor open. Let's go to the net cash flow. And I should also declare I've been buying Coles. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, so I'm a shareholder in Coles. Right. And you'll, it'll become apparent why when we do the QAB analysis. Okay. And we'll do Coles first. So uh, operating cash flow, 3.428, but I'm expecting that's it's billion. So it's 3 3,428 million. 3.428 billion. Yeah. Yeah. Does that sound low? Uh, no, three and a half billion a year is about right. Oh, okay then. Number of shares on issue? Mm-hmm. 1,334 million. 1.3 billion. Wow, that's a lot of shares. Okay, that gives me a cash per share of $2.57. Okay. Roughly. Yep. Share price? $12.71. And we're recording this on the 5th of June. 2019 for reference. Yeah. Probably going to be different when people are listening to this. Absolutely. Uh, which gives me a share to cash ratio of $4.95. Yeah, I've got four ninety four. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's look at the sentiment. Which is low. It's below six, so that's a good score. Yeah. 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 Okay, so sentiment. This sentiment. Maybe hard to work out because it hasn't been around for very long, so it yeah. floated out of... West Farmers, or looks like about uh, prior to December 2018. Right, so six months ago. Yeah, but the sentiment is, I mean, it's hard to tell with this graph, but it's rising. Right, yep. It's gone from 11.75 up to 12.73, roughly. Yeah, in yeah. six months. So it's it's not a strong growth, but it's up there. a buck. Mm-hmm. 10%, a little bit less than 10%. Okay, so yeah. we'll give it a one yeah. or a two? Uh, I'll probably, I would have given it a two. Okay. Yep. Dividend yield, have they put out a dividend yet? No, so I've got not applicable here at the moment. So okay. There, I'm sure there will be a dividend, so it's probably just better to null that one at the moment. Right. Yeah. And their PE? 18.73. But we don't have a history to compare it to, so we don't know if that's low or high. Right. 
All right. We're not going to have PE history, but not that that matters. Net equity? Equity is two point. Oh, sorry, two six seven two million. So two point six seven two billion dollars. Oh, the sun just came out. Yeah, the rain has stopped. You Look must, at that. You must be going. Soon. I must be leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sydney. There's a rainbow over the airport that's saying, "Come to me, Cameron." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. He's about to go. Can uh, bring the sun back out again. <laughs> Safe. <laughs> We stopped another migrant from coming down from Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> All right, net equity per share, I get about $2. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a price to book of 535%. Right, okay. Sounds high. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Doesn't sound right. No, it's probably right. Okay, their uh, net income? MPAT is... Seven hundred and sixty-two million. Million, mm-hmm. and their earnings per share fifty-seven point one two cents. So I have a return on equity of twenty-nine percent. Mm-hmm. Got a future earnings per share? Uh, let's have a look. No, I don't. I don't have a future one. Sorry. Hmm. Why would that be? Uh, don't know. We could probably check in uh, Reuters or something like that and see if we can find one. On Reuters, I've got 66.42 for a year ending June 19 and mm-hmm. 66.24 for a year ending June 20. Okay, I don't have any on Yahoo Finance. I've got NA. So I'll just use the June 19 number? Yeah. Generally, that should be fairly accurate because we're getting close to year end. Okay, so... Got an intrinsic value number one of two dollars ninety three. Intrinsic value two eight dollars eighty six. Okay, so below the share price. Yeah. All right. Well, now I get into my checklist. Is it a star stock? No. Okay. Share analysis is gone. Yep. Uh, is the share price beneath the stock doctor intrinsic value? It's not. So, again, it's a consensus value rather than stock doctor. 13 analysts are saying it's worth $12.50. What did we say it is? $12.73. Yeah. Right. So it gets a zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it below my intrinsic value at 19.5%? Uh, no. Mm-hmm. And it's not below intrinsic value number two either. Mm-hmm. Price to book is the share price less than 30% above the net equity per share. Net equity per share is two. So, no. Does it have a positive trend? Yes. So, we give it a two for that. Mm-hmm. Growth of the earnings per share over the PE, I get uh, 0.008. So, it's not higher than 1.5. No. 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 Correct. Oh. Know that my maths is wrong or no, it doesn't get a mark? It doesn't get a mark. It gets a zero. (laughs) Does the company have consistently increasing equity? Let's have a look. I didn't have all the uh, previous equities. I think we only had the one new result to look at. Yeah, we probably... We can't score that one. No, we've only got one. Yeah, so how would you do that? Would you null it? Null it, yeah. Yeah, Is the PE less than the yield? Well, there is no yield. Yeah, so again, I think we have to know it. Okay. Is the yield higher than the mortgage rate? Well, we've got no yield. Uh, financial health on Stock Doctor. Again, it's pretty new, right? Yeah. So we, well, is it we stable? Don't have the last two. No, we've only got the one to go on. So what would you do with that then? I probably know it, but you could, yeah. you could make a case to say it's going to be strong next time as well. It's a big company. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just give it a one. Okay. Is my intrinsic value forecast more than twice the share price? No. Um, is it one of the top 10 ASX stocks? Oh, I don't think so. What's its market cap? 17, 17 billion. I've got it listed here on the ASX 20. Yeah, I have two. You're right. So it is. Okay, so we want to... It's not the most undervalued because we know it's, according to our two metrics of evaluation, it was, the share right. price was above those. Yeah. Okay. So it gets a zero for uh-huh. that. Yep. That's the first one we haven't had to null there for a while. Right, yeah. Is the price to cash less two or equal than six? I've got Mm 4.94, so two Two. for a positive. Okay. 
Is your mate Stephen Kane an owner or founder of Coles? I wouldn't think so, but we'll just see what his shareholding is. No, he's got 0.01%. Okay. <laughs> the chairman has 0.03%. So no. that's cool. And we have no share analysis uh, intrinsic no. value going up. No. Okay. So total score of five. So that gives me a 42%. Mm-hmm. But when I divide that by the price to cash flow, I get a 0.08, which isn't greater than 0.1, but it's close to 0.1. Yeah, and certainly when it listed at $11.50, I was getting a score of 0.13. Right. Yeah, so perhaps the share price increase has brought that down a bit. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But I think if we now do Woolworths, we'll see that it's a better score than Woolworths, I would think. Right. Mm. But it's still not good enough to make our list. No. no. But close. But close, yeah. So It's on the watch list, I would think. On the watch list, and we'd want to check its numbers yeah. again. It, it's reporting in August? It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's jump to Woolworths. All right, well, we might leave it there for this week. There you go. Coles, close, but uh, no cigar. Speaking of which, it's time for me to go have a cigar. I think we'll uh, do Woolworths next week. Hope you found that one interesting. Uh, By the way, there is an updated version of my checklist with updated formulas, etc., etc. You can find that up on the checklist and portfolio tab on the website. I'll put it up there just as a spreadsheet. You can download it and steal some of my formulas. Uh, Hopefully, there's no mistakes. I just corrected another mistake today, which is... Why there's a new version up there. Doing Excel formulas is not my forte. I don't have a forte, actually. Just uh, making podcasts, I guess. I'm not even that good at that. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Thanks for subscribing and supporting the show. I hope you're getting value out of it. If you are if you have any ideas for how to improve on it or anything you'd like to see in upcoming weeks, uh, please do let me know. We've got another interview lined up coming up in the next couple of weeks, which uh, Tony doesn't even know about actually yet, but one of Australia's top value investors who runs his own uh, fund, his own portfolio, is going to be a guest on the show when Tony gets back from Scotland. We've had a couple of these tech growth stock promoters, and then uh, so I want to balance that up with somebody else who's a big value investor. Roger Montgomery, he's uh, written books on value investing, uh, also based in Sydney, uh, so that should be fun. RogerMontgomery.com if you want to check him out in advance. He's got a book, I think, called Value Able. Tony's been a big fan of his over the years, and so Roger's, I invited Roger to come on the show and have a chat, and he said, yeah, he'd love to, so uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in August. Otherwise, I'll be back next week with more analysis, and I'm going to try and get Tony to pop in on the phone from Scotland and tell us about playing the, he's playing St. Andrews today, I think, the old course, if that, uh, if you know more about golf than I do, I think that's the good one at St. Andrews, and uh, his distillery tours that he's been doing, be fun to touch base, if we can get a sober moment when he's not on the course to uh, tell us <laughs> about what he's been up to. All right, be back next week, take care.